ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program contains the names and voices of those who have passed. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. Land rights were born in 1963 at Yirkala in Arnhem Land, where I too was born. And my father, Mungurawi, and other clan leaders lodged a claim on behalf of the Gumach people and our mother clan, the Uraichingo people, whose leader was Milirpum. It was a petition written on bark to the parliament in Canberra. It was rejected at that time. And so in 1971 was our appeal in court before Justice Blackburn. When we claimed the minerals under our land, Remembering Aboriginal leader Una Pingu and Uncle Jimmy Little, a Yorta Yorta man. A lot of people know the part about my father was in the 60s with the hit Royal Telephone, but he had success earlier than that, noticed his talent from a very young age. And so he had hits on the radio station. So his success was something that he just grew leaps and bounds and he just kept going with it. and. Both my parents, though, were pretty level-headed. They didn't really see themselves as being famous or any of that sort of stuff. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. On RN Summer, we're repeating some of our favourite interviews from last year. This episode, we bring you highlights from a couple of shows. Actor, musician and teacher, the late Uncle Jimmy Little was a consummate performer. He began his career in 1951 and despite indescribable barriers and discrimination, he went on to become one of Australia's most acclaimed Aboriginal pop and country music icons. In 2004, he was made an Officer of the Order of Australia for his service to the entertainment industry as a singer, recording artist and songwriter and to the community as an ambassador for Indigenous culture and reconciliation. His daughter Frances Peters Little spoke to us last year just before she released a biography on her father. Before we hear from Frances, Uncle Jimmy Little sat down with the ABC back in 1988 at the time of the bicentennial, documenting his rise to the top of the Australian music scene. Tell me, Jimmy, white people tend to forget, I think, that that theatre is in the blood of the Aboriginal people. The um, Dreamtime adds a dimension to your culture which must encourage uh, many of your people to express the stories through acting and music and dance. Was that how you became interested? Yes, that's been my whole life, music. Mm. Had I been born in my forefather's era, I would have been playing the didgeridoo and clapsticks. In this era, I'm playing guitar. (laughs) What percentage of the Aboriginal people make music and dance? Well, because we are a people who didn't really document in writing form our history, it was orally passed on Mm. with signs in our music and dance. So we are a very sensitive people in what we have to say mm-hmm. and uh, preserve. And that is the case today with uh, all my fellow performers in this modern era. We, uh, we tell the past as best we can 
and uh, we also express our desires for the future from the present standpoint. Where did you first learn music? In what way? Um, through that oral tradition? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It's, it was, you could say, an inbuilt thing that my grandfather, my father's side of the family, played the violin. My father and my mother were both affordable entertainers mm. and I, as a child in the audience, used to enjoy viewing my parents and my relatives, older relatives, and it was just in my blood to continue the uh, tradition. Initially, was it more in the traditional style of Aboriginal music? No, the traditional was disrupted, mm. in a sense. By that I mean we, in the uh, time when I was growing up, and my parents as children, found that uh, we weren't able to continue the um, traditional side of our lives because of the early colonisation. So we quickly made ourselves adaptable to the English-speaking world and still applied our trade in music and art. That's not the complete answer, though, is it? How many Aborigines are still practising and developing the traditional arts? Oh, there are thousands, literally thousands. It's still a growing art form? It is the thing that we believe is our spiritual beginning and our heritage and our right to practice. And uh, the cycle, as people commonly say, the, the cycles of history go around, well, in our music, in our art form, the cycle of redeveloping and uh, reintroducing or introducing uh, um, our culture in, in art form is, is coming back with a vengeance. Would you say we've achieved all that much in 200 years in terms of uh, an exchange of understanding and education between white and, and black men about each other's cultures? It seems to me that when the first fleet arrived and they heard Aboriginal music and they thought, my goodness, what's that? And Aborigine pe- the Aboriginal people heard white men with their fifes and drums and ran horrified into the bush, that we haven't really got much further than that. In most cases, as I see it, we have. Every day is a step forward, truly. I'm a positive thinker. You sure are. <laughs> and uh, I do believe there are. Sometimes you take two steps and one back maybe, but uh, everyone is looking forward to a better day. And uh, that is the case with uh, the Aboriginal thinking and the feeling that we must uh, stand and go forward in our expression, whatever form we take it in. And um, I do believe that uh, we are all going forward. How powerful a vehicle do you think theatre is, the sort of thing you're doing um, in getting the message across? Well, music, theatre and the arts is on a par with the political world we live in on a par, meaning that it's very persuasive, very influential, and it's very informative. Tastefully done, that is. So, uh, to me, music, in all its art form, is um, very important to, to the whole community to absorb, observe, and uh, take time to analyse. Time is one of the elements that seems to hold us all back. We're so busy in our self-existence and survival that sometimes we don't have time to listen to what people say. They speak so loud, but we don't hear. And that's the case right across the board. Whereas, in a subtle sense, art, music, 
in all its form, uh, never goes away and it gradually gets inside of people and, and people begin to understand. The old saying too is what people don't understand, they're all too ready to brand. But music, tastefully again done, in its, uh, in its proper form, can bring people together in an understanding way. You've just heard from the late Uncle Jimmy Little. He was speaking to the ABC back in 1988. Uncle Jimmy Little's daughter, Frances Peters Little, is a historian, filmmaker and musician. When we recorded this interview, she was about to publish a book on her father titled Jimmy Little, A Yorta Yorta Man. That was really funny. The, the whole idea of me writing uh, my father's biography was definitely not my idea. I didn't want to do it. It was a time when it was just after Dad did Messenger album and people were asking about Dad doing a biography because there's never been one written before. So my parents discussed it. They told me. They said, we want you to write it. I said, no. I tried to find writers all over the place. I didn't think I was capable of doing it, you know. I was really terrified in a way that I wouldn't live up to the task. The thing was my parents insisted and insisted and I couldn't find anybody who would be the biographer. And so I thought, oh, well, my parents wore me down. And so that's what happened. I ended up writing it. What was your father's childhood like? Dad grew up in a really difficult time in the 30s. He was born on Kamragunja Mission, and the year he was born was the year that they had that particular mission manager, who McQuiggan, who um, is now famous for the way that he treated the Aboriginal people on Kamragunja Mission and how the people at Kamra went on a strike because of the conditions that uh, they had to live on uh, on Kamragunja Mission. The other part of my father's childhood was that his parents were both Bordevillians. So, you know, he went around watching his parents being musical and performing. But it wasn't always easy because they lived an itinerant lifestyle. They were always chasing where the work was, whether it was fruit picking or timber yards and, or, you know, occasionally just doing anything where they'd find a little bit of work here and there and selling things that they'd made, like boomerangs and stuff. And, you know, so it was really tough. It was really tough. And it's the way that I think that really hard time in the 30s in Australia for all Aboriginal people, including my dad and his family, it's amazing that they came out of it positive and determined. Of course, one of the things that's wonderful about your father's story is not just obviously his success as a musician, but this feels like there's a wonderful love story in his life. How did he meet your mum and what was their relationship like? What was she like? Oh, my mum had a very different lifestyle to my dad growing up. She grew up in northwest New South Wales around Lightning Ridge and then Walgett, and her father worked on a station and her mother was a domestic in the town, but she came from a big family and they all stuck together remarkably because those days people were still early days of running around taking kids. 
And so when she moved to Sydney in the 50s and my dad moved to Sydney from the South Coast in the 50s, it was really a time of when government policies were all about assimilation for Aboriginal people to make them fit in. And so they'd moved to the city independently and there was a really huge uh, Aboriginal community that already existed in Sydney in the 50s and a lot of people came down from the country town and they there used to be football teams like the Redfern All Blacks, the Laparoos. There were always these dances that they put on, like barn dances that were Aboriginal performers. And so it was one of those times when there was a barn dance on at the Waterloo Town Hall and to change the partners and everything. And so, but he spotted my mother from the get-go. And when it was her turn to come around in the barn dance, he tried to be, you know, really cool and everything. And he knew then he was smitten. And he said to me, he said, look, I even loved her name. She had the most beautiful name, Marjorie Peters. So, you know, my mum said to him at that time, the first word she said to him was, uh, you're going to sing tonight. And he says, oh, yeah. She said, can I request a song? And he said, oh, yes. Um, what is it? She said, could you sing Rosemary? And he said, well, I might. <laughs> <laughs> How did the, his success as a musician start to change the life of your family? A lot of people know the part about my father as in the 60s with the hit Royal Telephone, but he had success earlier than that. He was 16 years old. He'd come up and get on the radio. He won a, came second, sorry, in a talent quest. He appeared at different things even as a teenager. He wasn't going to see his father, never held him back. He just said, yes, it's all out there, son, go get it. and. So he was always achieving and people noticed his talent from a very young age. And so he had hits on the radio station like Danny Boy and El Paso. And this is in the late 50s, early 60s, long before Royal Telephone came along. He got a lot of work. He's on television and all sorts of things. So his success was something that he just grew leaps and bounds and he just kept going with it. And both my parents, though, were pretty level-headed. They didn't really see themselves as being famous or any of that sort of stuff. That's how it affected him. And when I grew up with it, I just thought it was normal. It was anything different. I was going to ask you about that because I assumed it did feel normal and you talked about the moving around. It was great fun. When did you realise that your dad was actually quite a big deal? Oh, that's a really good question because I never really thought he was a big deal at all. <laughs> uh, I, knew, I knew other members of the family did, but I thought that's crazy. He was just dad. It was really important, I think, for my parents to not get overblown, you know, big-headed about anything. So that's, I suppose, why I didn't really think about it as a big deal. So what? Everybody went on television, didn't they? (laughs) (laughs) 
I just wondered if you could share with us a little bit about the community work you did. As you say, people know Jimmy Little from his music, from his iconic songs, but he was very committed to giving back to the community. I wonder if you could share a little bit about the things that were close to his heart in relation to that. I think a part of what I address in the book is about the misconceptions that people had about my father as being somebody who just sang and didn't really care very much for the community. From the beginning of uh, his career, he was always involved in charities and things like that, that uh, not just Aboriginal charities, like children, homeless, all that sort of thing. He was very involved in those sorts of things of go out and perform to raise funds for them and things. And that just continued, of course. He was much involved with the Foundation of Aboriginal Affairs in the 60s, which was people like Charlie Perkins and Chicka Dixon and a lot of really important people that were on the on board there and running the Foundation's um, music concerts on the, on the weekend. And even a cafe, when the Foundation opened a cafe, um, Dad be down there serving milkshakes to people who come in and stuff. So, but there were other things too. I mean, it was like the 1967 referendum. My father was involved with the people of that time going out there and trying to. It was because the 67 referendum movement, it was about trying to show Aboriginal people as equal and Aboriginal people as able and successful and stuff like that. He, he really got involved with those sorts of things with people like Faith Bandler. And I'm just trying to think of Pauline Clegg's mother. Joyce. Yeah, Joyce Clegg. And they went out and, you know, wherever they could to sort of raise the profile of positive images of Aboriginal people. And then following from that, he always went to these different events and showed his support, even with the football, the first Koori knockout, the dad got behind and sponsored the Koori United football team. And they took out the grand final in the first one, I think. I think they did. And they're just always on committees and boards and all sorts of things. But he always asked by the media. He was always invited to speak on television or radio about Indigenous issues. He never shied away from those things. He gave his own view on those things. Dad always knew that there was something really amazing about Aboriginal people, that he knew that we had a charm and a goodness and talent, and he always promoted that. And so when people thought that he wasn't political enough, it all depends what you think by the word political. He wasn't out there marching and flying flags, but he was doing a lot of other stuff. And because of his nature as a quiet, gentle person, he didn't blow his own horn on that. Well, it's wonderful to have your insights into him in a book that will allow us as readers to appreciate him as a much more well-rounded, thoughtful, engaged person. Is that your hope that audiences will start to see him differently? Well, I think even towards the end, my father ran a foundation 
He was involved very much in promoting healthy living for Aboriginal people, travelled everywhere in communities all over the country, talking about Aboriginal people and health and promoting the art because he had to go on dialysis there for a while, that there was life after dialysis because so many Aboriginal people die of kidney failure. It's really important, I think, to me, it wouldn't have been so much important to mum or dad that people get over that stuff about Jimmy Little didn't care about his community. That's a lot of rubbish. Just finally, was there ever any piece of advice or something he said to you that you've held really closely? I think what stuck out for me was that my parents really, he believed to be about being independent. He said it'll cost you a lot, but being independent is worth it. That's pretty much what I think I've tried to do. I'm not a very good party politics person. I'm not a very good party person, full stop. I think that that's what he went through. It was about you had to be independent. He had his eyes on the prize, moving forward, reaching his dreams, and that's the message I think he wanted to put out there for me and, and others. It's wonderful and it's all captured in your book. Francis, thank you so much for coming on, speaking out and sharing those wonderful reflections on your dad and giving us a bit of an insight into what's in the new book. Thank you, Larissa. I was born on the banks of the Murray Yorta, Yorta is my mother's tribal stand I'm her son, but my father's name I carry As I walked through this great and ancient land My father taught me all the things I needed Like identity And dignity With love From his southern Tribal coastal ways Of living Wallaga Lake And Gulagoon Mountain High above I'm a curry and I come from Cumbridge, where my people and my dreaming all began. Someday I know I will be returning, like the legend of my tribal. My tribal ways are strong and not forgotten And though my city ways of living Well, they may be grand But you know, I could pack it up Yes, and leave it all tomorrow And go back to my Yorta, Yorta clan The nature of the bush 
in all its beauty gives me strength in my will to understand that no matter where I go my river people will be waiting for this Yorder Yorder man I'm a And I come from Camrogunda Where my people and my dreaming all began Someday I know I will be returning Like the legend of my tribal Like the legend of my tribal boomerang Like the legend of my tribal boomerang That's legendary Aboriginal singer-songwriter Uncle Jimmy Little with Yorta Yorta Man. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt, and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. We're taking a look back at some of the most important moments from the past 12 months. In April last year, one of Australia's most influential Aboriginal leaders, Una Pingu, passed away aged 74. A trailblazer in the fight for land rights and constitutional recognition, Una Pingu was part of the first Australian legal case which tested the native title rights of First Nations people. He helped set up the Northern Land Council and the Yothu Yindi Foundation. In 1985, he received an Order of Australia Medal for his services to the Aboriginal community. He went on to advise successive governments and was celebrated as a singer, artist and promoter of Indigenous culture. Identification, this is the Press Cub Luncheon, recorded ex-Canberra on the 10th of November 1977. End of identification. Our speaker today is Mr Gullaroy Yunupingu. Chairman of the Northern Land Council and a traditional tribal leader of the Goomach people, owners of the land where bauxite is now being mined on the Gove Peninsula in Arnhem Land. We are going to hear a great deal of Mr Yunu Pingu in the coming years. As Chairman of the Northern Land Council, the influence he and the Aboriginal peoples he represents will exert in the development of the North has yet to be appreciated or understood by most people. The Northern Land Council, comprising 57 members, representing 33 Aboriginal communities and groups in the northern part of the Northern Territory, has the task of negotiating on behalf of Aboriginal people with those who wish to use their land, such as mining companies. We look forward to hearing Mr Yunupingu's views on the development of the North the restraints which he feels should be imposed and the benefits which he feels should flow to the peoples he represents. Mr Yunu Pingu.
Tungarayu, 1963, land right, Murunira Irkala, land, Muni Narakala Bapayu, Ka Uru Urumuyu, Narakala, Irkalangura, Nang Duruna Government Na, Canberra Lily, Wangao, Wangang Uningana Purungo, Yolmo, Uningana Purungang Duruna, Uningang Dunangana Purungo, Government to Bukur of Turuna. Abing Ru Tungara is seventy one, nineteen seventy one, though. Anaburu, Anguruna, Justice Blackburn Gala, Court Mura. Kamunili, Justice Blackburn, though. Yakanganaburungo, Koruparawana. Muninganaburung Anguruna, Wangao, Yakango, Yaikunarao, Kamerikumanarao, Anaburungalango Wangao. I spoke this in Gumach. In Australian, in one of the languages of Australia. I spoke it like this for my own people, the Gumach people and other people of Australia who will be listening today. Now let me speak it again in English language, which is only my second language, and it is difficult for us. Land rights were born in 1963 at Yirkala in Arnhem Land, where I too was born. And my father, Mungurawi, and other clan leaders lodged a claim on behalf of the Gumach people and our mother clan, the Urejingo people, whose leader was Milirpum. It was a petition written on bark to the parliament in Canberra. It was rejected at that time. And so in 1971, was our appeal in court before Justice Blackburn. When we claim the minerals under our land, as well as our land, and try to spoil the mining, and spoiling of our land by Nabalka. So that was in English. For our European Australian brothers and sisters who have given us so much of our land at last, the parliament Aboriginal Land Right Act of 1960, 1976 gave us more land in the Northern Territory than the whole state of Victoria. It was a big advance in our government's thinking. But now, as chairman of the Northern Land Council, I must tell you that the government has failed to do what the parliament told it to do almost 12 months ago in law, we still have no land. We have no title to any land. People we don't like come onto our land and stay on our land, and we cannot get them off. How would you feel if your home was invaded by strangers and you couldn't get rid of them? We are bitterly disappointed by the government's laziness and inefficiency. More than three years ago, Judge Woodward said that Aboriginal land should be owned and looked after by land trust. He said he had accepted our council's advice. More than six months ago, Judge Fox said the Land Rights Act should be amended to allow Aborigines registered title to their land, even though its boundary were not surveyed. 
but the parliament has risen and the act has not been amended. More than six months ago, we wrote to the minister about this. Four months ago in Darwin, the minister said he would act within two months. He still hasn't acted. The land is still not ours. If the government will not act, then the Northern Land Council demands money from the government to hire surveyors to get on with the job. For example, I took two landowners of the Ranger country where uranium is being mined or will be mined. The two brothers, Toby Majendi and Jimmy Gengeli, across the Gove where bauxite is being mined already to show them what mining is all about because they were told that mining will take place in their country, which involves uranium. I took them across the Gove, and here, when they actually saw the damage that Nabalco has done to the land and the holes and the pollution and the big buildings and the noise of the heavy vehicles, they were shocked. They thought that the hole were going to be small, but when they actually saw it, it's too big. Last month, helicopters from Temporary Station, which is owned by Sir Frederick Sutton, a motor car dealer who lived in Sydney, trespassed on Aboriginal land at Daly River and took away several thousand head of cattle, which belongs to an Aboriginal company called Unia. I would act, I would call that stealing, and so would you, I'm sure. But the land is not yet legally ours, so it is not stealing. The law cannot help us, only our friends in Darwin Trades and Labor Council who have put a ban on sudden motors and all cattle from temporary. So the laziness and inefficiency of the government is damaging and vigorous company of Aborigines, led by Aboriginal Harry Wilson, who left Daly River Mission about five years ago to set up an outstation called Pibamanati. So far, this Aboriginal company has branded 9,000 cattle, trucked hundreds to the meatworks in Darwin and Catherine, and exported 400 live to Hong Kong. I have told you this story because you must understand how we feel when our efforts are being frustrated by the government, which can act with vigor to meet the needs of Darwin people after the cyclone, Tracy, and to meet the needs of minor on our land why can't it be acted with vigor to meet our need? Of course, we will get the title eventually. But remember how much our people have suffered over the years from betrayal and broken promises. It is any wonder that they are anxious and fearful now, still with no land. So families and clans suffers. But now I can feel the rising spirit of our people. 
the same spirit which moved the Gurindjis to walk off Wave Hill in 1966. We are patient people, but we are determined. For this reason, I believe that the Northern Land Council is well qualified to do its statutory duty, which is to research and then present land claims to Aboriginal Land Commissioner, Judge Tui, who will make his recommendation to the government. For example, the judge is just finishing endowing the hearing of land claims for 1,119 square miles in Burulula area of Gulf Country. Our other statutory duty is to safeguard Aboriginal land from developers or, when necessary, negotiate with mining companies, not only to protect Aboriginal land, but only to protect the long-term interest of European Australians too, because Aboriginal land is part of Australia. We live on our land. We love it. We are nothing without it. Government can give away land for short-term gain, financial, economic, even political. We intend to protect that part of Australia, which has been entrusted to us, writing in agreement the strictest environmental safeguards, and we will be there watching to enforce them. We didn't want uranium mining or any mining on our land. But, of course, Nabalco has been mining and treating bauxite at Gove for some years and PHP has been mining manganese on Groot Island since 1960s. And now, people are trying to force us to accept that mining, uranium mining, will go ahead. But we insist that we don't want uranium mining. And I illustrated the feeling and the reaction of traditional owner when I told the little story about Jimmy and Toby. The Northern Land Council has started its negotiation with Ranger. I was at the first meeting in Darwin on October the 5th and we will be meeting again in Darwin soon. We have already submitted to Ranger our long and very detailed draft agreement, which has all Judge Fox's recommendation in it. It is the best mining agreement in Australia. However, it is not better than agreements which are being written all the time in other parts of the world. But this draft agreement is, of course, confidential. But I will reveal the text of another confidential document, which reports a meeting in Canberra on September the 19th, 9th, between the Secretary of the Department of National Resources, the Secretary of Atomic Energy Commission, and uranium company representatives. I reveal it as a strong protest, because the Northern Land Council should have certainly have been represented at that meeting as a body empowered and obliged by Act of Parliament to negotiate with the mining companies. 
Nothing should be hidden from the council. The report said, and I quote, the government will shortly issue guidelines for the exploration of stage two of Kakatu National Park. The goal of these guidelines will be orderly exploration. The guidelines will be developed within a month or so. It is most probable that there will be a new and special form of explore, exploration licensing. It is highly probable that tendering will be used to allocate exploration in this area. That is the end of one quote. So there will be an exploration on land which we claim. But the Northern Land Council is not being consulted about this. Finally, this confidential report said, and I quote, it is obvious that the producers have split ranks on issues of development plan and that there is a spirit of fierce competition between them. I envisage that the unity shown by the forum will disappear as soon as the formal development plan gets underway, unquote. So it is to be fierce competition to explore and exploit our land. Far more, for more and more uranium, and our Northern Land Council is not being told about it. What kind of people do they think we are? Two months ago, I met Father Mommers, John Mommers, at a conference of Pacific people in Oneyatta, Solomon Islands. And he invited me to Papua New Guinea, where I met ministers of the government in Port Moresby. Father Momus is a traditional owner of Vulcanville Island, where in 1963, Consing Rianto signed an agreement negotiated by Australian government to mine copper. In 1974, after independent, the agreement was renegotiated by the new Papua New Guinea government. With the advice of international experts, the new agreement extracted from the company far more justice in money, control and safeguard for the people of Papua New Guinea. Today, the Northern Land Council is employing one of these same international experts, Mr. Stephen Zorn of New York, who was with, with us in Darwin last month in Ranger Talks. One of our honorary consultants is Dr. Ross Garno, an Australian in National University of Canberra. Dr. Garno is development e economist who worked for the Minister of Finance in Port Moresby and took part in Bougainville negotiation. Another honorary consultant is Dr. Nicholas Peterson, also of National University. Dr. Peterson is a Cambridge-trained anthropologist who was research officer to Judge Woodward in his land, land rights inquiry. Let me remind you that Aboriginal people would prefer to be able to do this professional work for themselves, but for the reason which you might think about, 
We don't have our own experienced professionals yet. We believe that Aboriginal determination and the kind of expertise I've just described will protect the long-term interests of all Australians, European and Aboriginal. As we negotiate with the mining companies wanting to work on our land, we want not only royalties, but a fair share of profits once these rise above an accepted level. In this way, at the expense of big companies, we will be able to pay for better housing and other necessary improvements in our lives with less expense for our fellow Australian taxpayers. We insist that there be no work whatever on our land by any mining company until the Northern Land Council has signed with the company a firm and comprehensive agreement. This is a statutory obligation. We also insist that the companies already mining our land, Nabalco and PHP, accept that it is reasonable and in our long-term interest that they too should renegotiate with us the agreements that they have made with the government. These were made without our approval years ago, when Australian public op opinion was very different. This is not a statutory obligation for them, but it is a moral obligation which was strongly recommended by Judge Woodward. PHP should understand that ownership of the land at Gruda Island gives real power to make its mining difficult, if not impossible, by denying its workers access to beaches and other recreational areas, shutting them up on their mining and special purpose leases. We don't like doing this to our friends. We do it only because we are unhappy about the existing mining leases, church leases, grazing leases, special purpose leases of all kind in middle of Aboriginal land. They are an front to our new stater and strength within Australia. They remind us of our old dependent and weakness. They allow others to keep their influence on us Aborigines who should be thinking and acting for themselves. The Northern Land Council does not want to hunt PHP and Nabalka off Aboriginal land, but it does expect to renegotiate the terms of their existing leases on our land. After this, we will be able to live together as equal. We must warn PHP that the traditional owners of Groot Island, like Nanjuara Amagula, are determined, as the Gurindji were determined. In the middle of last month, we learned that Ranger was starting works of quite substantial kind of its mining site. And we protested to the Prime Minister by telegram. His answer on October 18th disturbed us. He wired us, and I quote, 
consistent with the government's decision and intention to consult with Aboriginal people. The government believes that it is important they should continue." Unquote. That is to say, he told us, the work, the work must continue. And of course, consultation is no protection. Did he deliberately leave out any mention of Ranger's legal obligation to sign an agreement with Northern Land Council before any mining go on? Our field officers told me today that the work has now stopped. We have acted and we have been successful. We will stay watchful. On August 25th, when the Prime Minister announced that uranium mining would allow on our land, Mr. Viner recalled that all just Fox's recommendation about Aboriginal land has been accepted. And he said, quote, the government's decision will ensure that Aborigines themselves can exercise effective control over matters affecting their interests, unquote. We know that this is not happening, and I have given you the evidence. The Cockatoo Nas National Park will be an Aboriginal land, and we wanted this only because we thought the management of park would help us control intrusion on our land. Judge Fox said the Northern Land Council should take part in this management. But what has happened? In July this year, the Northern, Land, Northern Territory Legislative Assembly passed an ordinance setting up its own Park and Wildlife Commission with an advisory council. No one invited the Northern Land Council to be represented on these bodies. And when we applied for membership, it took five weeks for our letters to be acknowledged. And then we were told on August 23rd that no decision would be made for some weeks. Four months after the ordinance was passed, we still didn't know if we would be represented on these bodies. Then only last week I was invited as chairman to join the advisory council. But we expected seat on the commission itself, which we asked for. We believe that decisions are being made in secret, which we ought to, by law, to be discussing. So it goes on. These are difficult days for all of us, Aboriginal Australians and European Australians as we learn to live together in a new way, with real equality at last. We Aborigines want to share this land with you, and we ask you to share it with us openly and without fear or secret dealings. We ask you to be as responsible as we have been for 40,000 years in preserving our heritage and environment. I would like to thank the President 
and the members of the National Press Club for inviting me to speak here today as Chairman of the Northern Land Council. All my councillors and all Aboriginal people appreciate the honour and opportunity. May I also thank the Australian Broadcasting Commission for making it possible for my words to reach Aboriginal and European Australians everywhere. Thank you. That was the late Aboriginal leader, Unipingu, who passed away last year, aged 74. That's the show for now. Join us again next time for more stories from Indigenous Australia. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.